Are you ready to unlock the secrets of startup success and venture capital? Be prepared to be resilient. Every day is a challenge. Startups is three steps forward, 2.9 steps back. <laughs> Join me as I talk to TC Parta, a seasoned startup founder, CEO, and angel investor with 25 years of experience in the tech industry. I really enjoy being part of startups. And I enjoy being part of the startup ecosystem. I mean, one of the great things about an angel group is you get all of these companies coming to you, giving you their pitch. You get to see what's going on. You get to be part of the ecosystem. In this episode, we will discuss startup resilience, the importance of cultural understanding and the role of angel investors. You can have a really, really simple idea. But if you if you have a lot of customers for it, if you know how to market, if you can build up a brand name, you can make a lot of money. And that's what investors are looking for. Stay tuned for an insightful conversation packed with valuable advice for CEOs and investors in the world of startups. Okay, wonderful. Yay. And I have my book here. Um, and this is my only copy too. I was supposed to get a, uh, yeah. a box of author's <laughs> copies, but they haven't arrived yet. So this is my only copy. So you bought it yourself? I had to buy it myself from Amazon and have it delivered. Already? <laughs> yes. I thought you get a ton of books. I, I do, but they haven't arrived yet. And people were asking me where, you know, can I see the book and, or I need to show yeah. it for events like this. So I had to, yeah. you know, if you order it directly from Amazon, it comes, you know, a day or two later. Um, the ones where you order a box of them uh, take take a month to arrive. Yeah, are we recording? Are you recording from your house or is it? Yes. Uh, so this is actually cool. our tea house yeah. uh, in the in the back of our house. This is my wife's uh, room that she uses for teaching tea ceremony. You, so yeah. we're preparing for uh, Girls' Day, yeah. um, which is uh, called Hina Matsuri. So Hina means the dolls, and you can see mm -hmm. the dolls behind us and the uh, the picture on the scroll of the. Um, Of, of the kinds of dolls that uh, are here, which is the, you know, emperor, empress, uh, and and the court. That's cool. So we have a common interest in Japan. I am training in Japanese martial arts. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think I have mm -hmm. a book here. Ah, yeah, here it is. So I can show you this one. The complete ninja. <laughs> wow, okay. It's, an, uh, it's a martial arts taught by Masaaki Hatsumi. Uh -huh. He's uh, the grandmaster. He was a judo master in Japan. And so I think we have a common... Where does your interest in, in Japanese culture come from? Uh, I lived in Japan a long time. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously living there, uh, I, I, I learned the language. I, I kind of spent a lot of my time there. I really enjoyed the, the corporate culture and the um, the way... It's very different from America. In fact, America is one extreme of individualism. Japan's the other extreme of everybody kind of looks out for each other and takes care of each other, which has its downsides too. Yeah. Um, and so it's, especially as a, as a non-native, it's, uh, it can be a struggle to live there, but it can also be incredibly interesting and rewarding. So, uh, and then I married my wife who, she was a computer programmer. I was the engineer on a project together. Um, and dragged her back here. And now uh, she gave up on computer programming and she teaches uh, Ikebana, Japanese flower arrangement and uh, and tea ceremony and also teaches at a Japanese school. So she keeps busy doing Japanese culture while uh, I do startups and write about startups and write about Japanese culture. And uh, and then the book, as, as you see, kind of combines both of those with uh, with Japanese culture, but also startups in Silicon Valley. 
Is it about your life to book them, the killer unicorn? No, absolutely not at all. Um, it's, uh, but I mean, you, you're reading it's a farce about Silicon Valley um, and kind of the parts about the Japanese culture are just, uh, you know, they're, they're imagined, but, you know, they're, they're, they are based on some sort of reality it's it's fun reading it's it reads like uh for me for me as an austrian like a parallel universe there are so many things yes. in there that uh i always think i know it so you mentioned google you mentioned apple and then there are suddenly some uh some new terms what was me work for example it's hilarious i think <laughs> yes well i couldn't say we work right <laughs> because then we work could sue me for for uh you know for for their reputation so i yeah. i called it me work instead <laughs> and i created this um i couldn't call a company you know where he worked google so i had to make up a whole new company where he worked which was uh mecon or mecan which of course, just like Google has all, you know, they've got their own mapping and they've got their own um, office space and, yeah. uh, and, and uh, videos and everything else. And you reveal the true identity. And I think it's really the true identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. How yes. did you find? How did you find it out? <laughs> well, I went driving around Silicon Valley. I said, where would Satoshi Nakamoto live? Well, yeah. I mean, he's, you know, so I mean, he's a real Japanese and person and he, uh, and he was, uh, uh, researcher in, uh, databases, which you kind of have to be to have invented, uh, the distributed database, which is mm -hmm. what, um, cryptocurrency is and blockchain is. Uh, so I assumed he was, you know, had to be a postdoc or grad student or professor at, uh, at Stanford because all, all, all new inventions come out of Stanford, of course. Right. <laughs> So then, yeah, now he's a billionaire. So where would he be? Well, he'd be in the mountains the outside of Silicon Valley near a, near a tea house. So you live close to Silicon Valley in California and uh, in Los Angeles, as far as I researched. So actually, yeah, this is a little bit strange. Um, Los Angeles and, uh, and, and the San Francisco Bay Area are uh, pretty far apart. It's about mm -hmm. an eight-hour drive. I think it's about, uh, it's about 500 miles. So um, I don't actually live in Silicon Valley, but all of my work uh, was up there. I used to fly up there once or twice a week. Um, all of our customers were up there. So uh, I was in Los Angeles, which is not a tech place. It is entertainment. It, this is, it's Hollywood, right? And everyone is in the entertainment business except me. And I'm in the tech <laughs> business and I'm like this weird offshoot uh, umbilical cord tied to Silicon Valley that um, I would go up there, you know, twice a week. So um It was a little bit strange writing about Silicon Valley where I don't live and trying to really write the details of what goes on on a daily basis in different neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I've just spent so much time there that that uh, I was able to do that. But as I was writing um, the book, I actually took a couple trips up there to uh, to to look at some of the details that you're not going to get just looking at uh, at Street View. Google Maps, Google Maps. I'm, I'm in Google Austria. Maps, yes. I'm in the home. I was born in the same region like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I think it's, uh, uh -huh. it was one of your, uh, governors back then. He was the governor. Uh, He actually lives pretty close to us in, in Los really? Angeles in Brentwood. Yes. Really? Say hello um, when you see him. <laughs> uh, next time I see him. So, um, 
I live very close to a small airport called Santa Monica Airport, mm -hmm. which is just private airplanes. And when he was governor, he used to fly into that airport um, every weekend because he'd be up in Sacramento, which is the capital of California, during during the week for governor work. And then he would fly fly back in his private jet to uh, uh, and and we could hear his airplane flying in because the airport is supposed to close at nine o'clock at night. No one's allowed to fly in it uh, after nine o'clock. Except if you're the governor, you could fly at 11 o'clock at night and we would hear the airplane arriving every Friday night at 11. Yeah, it seems to have some advantages to be the governor yes. of California. Yeah, being a governor, yeah, it's kind of good. Is it one of I, your I should, goals? I should try it. Is it one of your goals to become governor of California? Um, you know, I have these dreams of like, what if I was a politician? But nobody listens to me anyway, so that. <laughs> I don't have the right personality. Um, and the interesting thing was neither did uh, neither did Arnold Schwarzenegger. So uh, I'm probably going to get myself in a lot of trouble here by saying uh, he was my favorite governor of California. Mm. And nobody says that because almost everyone who follows politics is, especially in California, is very strongly Democrat or very strongly Republican. And he was in the middle and he he was a Republican, but he he promoted a lot of the Democratic um, uh, policies. And even more importantly, he changed the politics to try to make the parties less important, which was the only thing you could possibly do that both parties would hate you for. <laughs> so everyone hates uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor, except for, for me. Uh, it was tough for him to get much done because both of the parties wouldn't support him. So it was it was a struggle. But I I'm. I really like how we change the policy so we have uh, open primaries and less party um, uh, pushing things. Anyway, uh, no, that's I probably think, one think... of the few things I could say that everyone will hate me for, so I, I ought to be careful. <laughs> no, I, I will not hate you. So uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is an Austrian, I'm an Austrian, and I yes. grew up with stories about Arnold Schwarz. Uh, I think in, in, in the US he says Schwarzenegger and yes. uh, Schwarzenegger in German. Yes. And uh, I mean, I was born in the 70s and I think it makes a perfect hook to your book and to your background and yes. startup investing. I think we should talk about three topics in this uh, in this podcast. One is your background, your experience in B2B marketing in the tech sector, okay. uh, your experience with startups mm -hmm. and your advice to startups. You write a lot okay. on Medium, so I love your yes. article on Medium. I'm a oh, huge thank you. fan of yours and read. Thank you. I, I think probably it's exaggerated that I read every single one, but I think I have, <laughs> I have read most about it. And when I have time and I see the LinkedIn, I also comment it. And then let's uh, dive into your book. I have also some questions here. Wonderful. Um, Arnold think is a good is a good hook to the startup world because uh, when I was a boy in the 70s, so late 70s, early 80s, there were the stories about this stupid Austrian who believes he can... Uh, become famous with bodybuilding. So he did mm -hmm. not do a normal job and he of course succeeded. He got Mr. Universe. And then yes. he had this idea, uh, which in the Austrian universe was also ridiculous. He wanted to become an actor and everybody here around mm -hmm. said, no way, no way can yes. an Austrian make yes. it in, in Hollywood. And he succeeded. And, and he did. It, yes. He, yes. He did Wonderfully. The, he did the third thing. Governor of California. So the also in Austria yes. it was like it's hilarious. I mean, a bodybuilder, an actor, an yes. Austrian and governor, yes. Governor of California. <laughs> and he did it. And I think in the startup world, it's pretty much the same because very often startup founders 
uh, have ideas where they, uh, let's say, get a little bit of pushback like Arnold Schwarzenegger did. Nobody believes mm -hmm. that they can do it. What is your experience yes. with the startup world? So I, I think you're exactly right that um, especially I focus on hard tech, um, which mm -hmm. I think is also your specialty as well. Um, and you get, I think, two kinds of founders. You get the founders who are the PhD students who go through the research and they invent some, you know, some new technology, let's say a better uh, a better cathode for lithium ion battery. And they're like, okay, this is, you know, store 50% more energy. Um, let's, let's make a, you know, let's get a patent. Let's make a company. Let's sell this to business. Uh, so very straightforward, right? Uh, or at least it seems that way. And then you have the other half, which uh, tends to be more the, the business people who say, we need a we need a better uh, battery. And, you know, everyone's working on lithium ion batteries and, you know, there's a million researchers on that. Let's do something completely different. You know, let's let's uh, let, let's make a completely different battery or even forget about batteries. You know, maybe there's a better way of storing energy um, and come up with some ideas. And sometimes they're pretty radical. Um, Elon Musk is probably a great example. And again, we're back into politics. So he's probably the closest analog to to uh, Arnold. Uh, I apologize for my American pronunciation, but uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Elon Musk is kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the startup world. <laughs> and he started, I, I believe, at PayPal. It's a right? Everyone, yeah. Um, and then he's like, well, why can't we have electric vehicles? We, we ought to be able to have electric vehicles. So um, he said, well, actually, it wasn't him. There were other founders who made electric vehicles, but you know, it was a small sort of thing and it was cute. And he's like, okay, well, you know, let's turn this into a big business. And he did. And Tesla is just this huge, amazing uh, success that I was very skeptical of at the beginning, having worked on electric vehicles. And he's like, wow, he did it. He's changed the world with electric vehicles. And the same thing with SpaceX, right? It's just like, why can't we make a... Uh, a cheaper, faster, better way of going into space than the usual government bureaucratic way. Why does it have to be done in, you know, in, in a government system? Why can't we take these ideas of, you know, maybe we'll blow up a couple, um, but we can also build a hundred of them and do it faster and do it at at, at a hundredth of the cost, and that's, you know, that's worth it. And we succeeded at that as well. Um, and solar panels on the roof. And uh, well, now we'll see what, how he does with Twitter, <laughs> where he's coming in to something that already exists instead of starting from uh, something pretty, pretty fresh. But um, that's kind of the idea that I think the outside world has of start founders uh, and unicorn leaders. Uh, um, most of them are not that way. Most of them are much more... Uh, much more willing to follow the rules, especially when it you know means the government's <laughs> suing you for for uh, financial violations. Um, but it does tend to be people who think outside the box, who say, "I have a goal, I have a dream. We need to do this. There's got to be a way to build it." Sometimes it works out spectacularly, and a lot of times it doesn't. But you know, we tried, and then that's kind of the building blocks for the next one. Even Theranos, right? Mm -hmm. um, Theranos was, and, and we'll come back to this in the book, but Theranos was a great idea. Theranos was, why do we need these giant blood machines that, you know, we have to send our blood test out and it takes three days to get results. Now we have microfluidics. Now we have all of these other technologies where we can do this quickly. We can do just, you know, real-time analysis of, of, uh, of blood samples, and we can give you a result right now. The problem is, 
she had this dream of, well, we're going to do 130 tests with, uh, with one drop of blood. And that was physically impossible. If she had backed off and said, that's our dream for 10 years from now, we can do the 10 most important tests that you need to know right now, like your cholesterol and, uh, um, you know, some of the other major things that that you want and you don't want to wait three days for because that's silly. Um, and we can do that with maybe not a drop of blood, but a small, small amount of blood instead of having to like take three tubes of blood. She actually built that. <laughs> it could it would have worked. And if she had backed off and said, well, this is what we have now. And it's not our, you know, it, we have this goal. We're going to make, we're going to make more tests. We're going to add to it. But she got into this idea of, I have to get to my, my dream. And she was willing to fake it till you make it, right? She was willing to, to, to lie and say, uh, when they asked her, you know, how much can you do? She said, we can do all these things instead of saying, no, we can do this right now. And this is great. And this is like half of the market. And it's still $10 billion. So uh, this is wonderful. Uh, and this is where the inexperience played in. Um, so. There's a lot of people like that, and some of them figure out, yeah, we can't do everything we want to do, but we can do, you know, 90% of the important stuff, and we'll get to the, the other things later. Um, and then there's some of them are just like, nope, 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 we got to, this is my dream, this is what I have to do, and it's, uh, you know, who cares if it if it blows up along the way, so... Uh, yeah, founders yeah, Thar- are interesting people. Theranos is definitely a good example for for the craziness yes. of the startup world. Uh, I think yes. it was Sebastian Malabi. His book is really good. It's uh, the history of venture capital, in my opinion, uh-huh. and he called it uh, premature truths. So in his book, that's a great line. Yes, um, yeah, <laughs> I call it say- "take it till you make it," but. Um, <laughs> yeah. The founder's point of view, and I see this a little bit too often now, the startups, this is kind of where the book comes from. Um, I will, I, I, I've seen founders where I've known things from the inside or found out later when the company uh, imploded that the idea is, well, especially for hard tech, if we don't get the money, we can't build it. Mm-hmm. But if we don't, if we don't have it already, no one will give us the money. So they're willing to, premature truth is such a perfect word. We will have it in six months. So give us the money now. We'll tell you we have it now. And then by the time you ask to see a sample of it, well, we'll have it by then. And if we don't, well, we're going to implode anyway. So who cares, right? And so, you know, Theranos just kept on going, going and turned into like billions of dollars. So it made big news. But um, I've been involved in other ones, either as as an employee or, uh, uh, or, or as an investor where, uh, it was the same sort of thing. They just didn't get very far after the six months. Okay, 10 investors together lost a few hundred thousand dollars. It doesn't make the news. It doesn't become a documentary, but it's not all that uncommon. How many how many cases are there in, in Silicon Valley that are similar to Theranos, in your opinion? Is it so a, somebody common? asked me that, and I kind of did a thought exercise. Yeah. So uh, I have invested either directly or through uh, a couple of uh, a handful of funds in roughly about 100 startups. Um, and of those hundred, I would say two of them, um, we found out afterwards just out and out lied to us and said they had something that they didn't have. Mm-hmm. Another five, so just on my small anecdotal sample, I'd say roughly 2% are just out, out lying. Now, again, it's premature truth. Their idea is not to be a fraud. Their idea is to get the money so that they can build it so that they will have it later. 
but they are sorry to interrupt yes. your thought process just a question popped up yep. in my mind uh yep. do you think in your opinion would it make a difference when they clearly say uh it's our vision so we are not there yet we need the money we get this and that milestone in with that amount of capital but the vision we will realize probably quantum computing for example we'll probably realize in five years 10 years 15 years we don't know yet uh would it make a difference in your opinion uh in fundraising uh compared to the situation like theranos where she said i have the holy grail of diagnostics i need just one blood sample and can diagnose yeah. every disease Well, it makes a huge difference. Um, and especially for hard tech, it's, there's a, there's a huge valley of death where mm -hmm. investors don't want to put money in until you've built it because, you know, just doing some research in university or just having, you know, something on paper, you might find a few investors that'll put in a little bit of money, but, um, it's really tough to go and, and raise two million dollars or five million dollars that you actually need to build it until you actually have the product. Nobody wants to invest in a in, in a PowerPoint presentation, right? What they want to invest in is a product. So once you have the product, it's easy to raise money. And then once you have customers for the product, it's another, it's an order of magnitude easier to raise money. So you're two orders of magnitude difference um, in how difficult it is to raise money and how much you can raise when you don't actually have the product yet. So there's a huge temptation to say we're at the next stage already. Uh, as you said, premature truth. We will be there soon. But if you say we're, we'll be there soon, they'll say, okay, come back to us when you're there. So you say, yeah, we are there now. Uh, and uh, well, it turns out you weren't. So yeah, about 2% in my experience, just out, out and out lied. Another 5% was in kind of this gray area. They didn't <laughs> completely lie, but uh, especially about customers. They said that yeah. customers signed when it was, They, they were in the process of talking to them, um, but they didn't have signed contracts. They weren't actually customers yet, but they would say, yeah, we have five customers um, who have already signed contracts. And they, they, they didn't. Now, maybe they would in three months have those five signed. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's bad when you end up lying because then you get caught in it later. And, um, and But it's just so tempting just to say we're we're one step ahead of where we are. Uh, and another part of it is from the marketing point of view, that's expected, right? And it, when you're doing marketing for your product, you don't go out and, you, and, and say, well, we have something that we're talking to some customers about. You say, look at these customers. They're already excited about our product, right? <laughs> Um, and let's put their names up on our website if we can get the, away the, with the, it. The, the, the first part would be the Austrian and the German way to just downplay it. So it's, uh, I think, the, well, the American okay, much... Yeah. So the American way versus the German way and then the Japanese way um, is is very different, right? I think, as you say, the German Austrian way is we have to follow. You know, we 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 have to be truthful about it where where our status is, which is why Americans are really good at marketing, right? It's mm -hmm, like that's true. Find a way to spin it. Without exactly lying, but put your best foot forward to get people excited about it. And, you know, if the customers are not really customers yet, you find a way of saying, we're, you know, we've got five, five people using it. Look at these great studies they've done. Well, it turns out, you know, you gave it to them for free and they were playing with it. They aren't actually customers yet. Okay, uh, that's fine. You have people using it. That's the message you want to get across.
But it's just but it's just seven percent. In you mentioned two percent are did lie five percent. Yeah, were in this gray area, and we have ninety three percent left. So ninety three percent basically yeah. are pretty honest. Yes, that's cool. That's cool. That's not. That's not. <laughs> I think it is the other way. It's like seven. There's like yeah. tens of thousands of startups, and that means there's you know thousands of uh, of uh, not exactly frauds, but companies that are lying about what they're doing and and uh, being unethical. Um, so I look at it, you know that's a huge problem. But yeah, so, you're right. Ninety three percent are are. Uh, you know, they will try to spin it. They will try to say, here's, you know, here's why you should look at us and here's all of our great points. But, you know, if you ask them a question and say, you know, have these people signed the contract? How many actual customers do you have? Uh, they will say, yeah, we're talking to investors. We, we have, we have to tell the truth. And here's, uh, here's our actual status. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you invested in hundred startups or more than hundred startups. Uh, did you understand that right? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yes. So yeah. I've invested in about 40 startups mm -hmm. um, directly. Mm -hmm. And about so, and then I'm in a, a member of five different funds, um, angel funds, either chemical mm -hmm. angels or tech coast angels, where we as a group will invest in uh, startups. I've been doing that for a few years. So there's five funds and together uh, they've invested in about roughly 60 companies. So I called a hundred total. How do you define uh, in California angel investments? You define yourself as an angel investor. Uh, what is your definition of an angel investor when someone wants to go to California? I mean, I'm asking yes. this question because yeah. basically California is the dream of every startup founder here in Europe. Uh, the best yes. ones want to relocate to the United States. And I'm yes. just curious to understand better the, the, the reality in California. What is your definition of an angel investor? Um, so let me give you the venture capitalist uh, definition of an angel investor first, because it's a little mm -hmm. bit easier to understand. Yeah. So from a venture capitalist point of view, a venture capital firm is a professional investor. And an angel investor is an amateur investor. Uh, <laughs> that's the way they look at with, it. And they kind of look down uh, on angel investors. With, um, with 100 startups invested, I would not directly put you in the amateur category. <laughs> but... But the, the the point is important that they are, I mean, a venture fund is a business. I think mean, I wrote about that uh, last week. Um, and they have employees who that's their full-time job to look at startups and to investigate the startups and uh, and work with the startups. And I think this really gets into the best definition of an angel investor is uh, an angel. Oh, and that's the other point. And they're in, investing other people's money, right? They are a fund. They get they get money from big institutions like retirement funds and uh, um, uh, universities and insurance companies, and their job is to go find startups to invest in. They have employees; they do that full time. Angel investors are investing their own money. I think that's the key differentiator. 
Uh, it's coming out of my bank account, <laughs> and I am invest, and I am making a personal decision whether to invest in that uh, startup myself. The place where the, the gray area in between there is I'm also a member of angel groups where we as a group will have a fund and we'll decide whether to invest. But fundamentally, it's our own money. It's it's a pool of our own money and we are making our own decisions. And then um, if there's success, the money goes back into our own bank account. So um, it is a fund, but it is still um, a volunteer organization where we do all of the investigating ourselves and decide ourselves what we want to invest in rather than a company, an investment fund that is investing on, on behalf of other people with full-time employees being paid to do that. You're a great So that's the other part is I am not paid to be an investor. I'm investing because I want to and because my hope and my expectation is those investments will pay off um, so I could invest in Apple stock and Netflix and, uh, you know, and, and Procter and & Gamble, or I can invest in startups. And actually, of course, I do both, what, right? What would be, this is my next question. What motivated you to take your money and invest it in startups? So when you became an angel investor, instead right. of leaving it uh, on the public sector, I mean, the returns in the last 10 years, thanks to quantitative easing, in companies like Facebook, Apple, Google, Netflix, were simply mesmerizing uh, right. for public companies. What motivated you to go down the private investment route? So uh, I should say I do both, right? And I put more money into like S&P index funds mm -hmm. because that's, my, that's where my retirement money is going, right? Mm -hmm. I don't put my retirement money into investing in, in startups. The risk is too high. The... the uh, um, the returns take too long to come there. But um, I was a startup founder. Uh, I started two uh, successful startups of my own. And then I've been kind of a co-founder, partial part-time co-founder of three other ones. I really enjoy being part of startups. Um, and I enjoy being part of the startup ecosystem. Um, and so I enjoy, I mean, one of the great things about an angel group is you get all of these companies coming to you, giving you their pitch. You get to see what's going on. You get to be part of the ecosystem. I enjoy being at uh, accelerators and kind of working with other startups and kind of helping them along uh, getting started uh, and investing as part of that. So if I find one that I think is, uh, it you know, has a good chance of succeeding, and especially if it's in an area where I know something about, right? Uh, whether, you know, kind of climate tech is one area of specialty of mine, and then kind of my own startups were in the IT space. So if they're in that space, I know something, I feel like I know more than the general public, and I can uh, I can guess whether they have a good chance of success. So I'm uh, not only investing, but then I want to be working with the founders and helping them along as a mentor and advisor. Um, then the angel funds, I'm taking advantage of everybody else's expertise, right? So uh, MedTech is a great example. Uh, at TechCoast Angels, if something comes through TechCoast Angels, which uh, there's 400 angel investors, uh, our particular chapter has 150 or so angel investors in it. Um, there's like four or five of us that are have an interest, especially in hard tech. Uh, and if something comes through this climate tech, it's like, I'll jump on that. I'll do the investigation. I'll lead the deal and I will recommend it to the rest of the group. Well, 
probably about half of the things coming through these days into Tech Coast Angels are life sciences, whether that be pharma, whether that be test tools, whether that be med tech. I know nothing about that space. And that takes a lot of special expertise. You need to evaluate the tech. I mean, the pitch sounds great, right? We're going to cure cancer. Well, not all cancers, but one particular kind of cancer. Or we've got a test tool to be able to give you blood tests faster for uh, anemia or uh, or diabetes. Or uh, And there's all these great things coming through. The pitches sound wonderful. It'll be great. But I don't know how many competitors there are that may be years ahead of them. I don't know what the FDA is going to approve or not. I don't know how much money it's going to take to get through the regulatory approval process. I don't even know what the regulatory approval process is. So I'm I'm not going to invest in that myself. However, in our group, we have members who are doctors. We have members who are anesthesiologists. We have members who built med tech companies. We have a member who was uh, part of the FDA who who did um, approvals of of uh, new med- medicines and knows that process intimately. So um, if those people look at it and say, this is a good investment, be like, okay, good. Yes, let's put our fund money into that because uh, that sounds great, even though I don't have a way of evaluating it. So the investments that are individual are mostly in spaces where I know something about and I've worked mm-hmm. with the founders, I believe in it. And then the other ones are ones where the group members have uh, have validated and looked into it. And then I'm just coming along for the ride. So you're a good contact person then for my network. It's mostly life science, uh, med tech. You can hook them up with the right people um, in your angel groups. It's it's good. It's good to know. Let's so stay- both, yeah. Tech Coast Angels is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily focused on companies in uh, California, specifically mm-hmm. Southern California. So it can be anything. It's not, but it's just nowadays, especially since we're tied to UCLA and USC. Um, and a lot of the innovation in the Los Angeles area that is not related to entertainment and marketing uh, tends to be in life sciences. And those are the things that we've invested in. But we've seen everything from women's handbags to uh, organic cider to new ways of packaging wine to wine kits to sake kits to um, you know, just about everything you can imagine will come through. But the ones that have gotten the most excitement and the most investment have been uh, in the med tech space recently. On the other side, there's Chemical Angels, mm-hmm. which is a nationwide group. And I think this is this is probably more interesting in general. Um, we invest in anything that is, uh, we, we say chemistry enabled, whether chem- new chemistry, new materials. Roughly about half of that is sustainability. How do we make things uh, without using um, petroleum products? Um, how do we recycle? How do we build better batteries? Um, It tends to be about materials and chemistry. Uh, And then the other half is uh, is med tech or or pharmaceuticals. How do that again comes out of how do we use chemistry to uh, to improve life? So uh, we we actually split it pretty roughly 50 50 into the life sciences and the uh, more traditional chemistry, which is nowadays mostly about sustainability. So uh, any listeners who uh, have a startup that's in the life sciences space, take a look uh, at uh, Chemical Angels. I think that's that's a good place for people to uh, uh, to apply. And it would help to be willing to create uh, the headquarter in the United States, if I got you right. Yeah. Wants so to pitch, uh, US-based investors. To pitch to Chemical Angels, um, we we rarely look at things outside of the U.S. because it's difficult for 
the group itself is mostly Americans, and it's difficult mm. for Americans to invest outside the U.S., unfortunately, due to our crazy tax laws. Um, Canada, we do sometimes invest in Canada, uh, but else, uh, beyond that, um, it needs to be a U.S. corporation. Now, that doesn't mean the company can't be based outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, in sustainability, Europe is ahead of the U.S. Absolutely. Really? And we're seeing a lot of great re- research. Oh, absolutely. When it comes to sustainability. Um, yeah, because the U.S. political situation has been so difficult when it comes to sustainability, it's kind of held held things back where I think Europe has been for quite a while has seen the climate uh, crisis as a crisis that needs solving. And a lot of the university research, uh, a lot of the startups that people want to make have come out of uh, out, out of uh, Europe, uh, Germany and Austria in particular, very strong in, in chemicals and chemical manufacturing and kind of uh, we're seeing a lot of things come out of there of how do we do it better? How do we do it without using um, uh, petrochemicals. How do we use green hydrogen? We're seeing a lot of that coming out of uh, Germany, Austria. UK also has a lot of startups in the in the uh, particularly in climate uh, related space. So uh, it's kind of frustrating for me as an American. It's difficult for me to invest in those companies, and there is a big enough ecosystem in those places that it doesn't really make sense to say, um, "Yeah, we're going to be our employees are all going to be in Austria, but we're going to have our corporate." Head corporate um, structure be based in the U.S. and Delaware because we want American investors. Um, whereas, um, if you are based in um, India, is a good example. Um, most of the Indian starts that we see will kind of follow this path of yes, all of our employees are in India except for like one sales guy who might be in the U.S. Um, but we will set up our corporate structure to be a U.S. Delaware corporation. That way we can get investment from both uh, people in India and, and investors in the U.S. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Now, when I look at Europe, I think it's pretty much a similar situation. I mean, the, the seed investing, startup investing is pretty much solved thanks to public funds. Right. Um, but it's, Yes, that's another advantage of Europe is there's a lot more public investment uh, and, and quite a bit of corporate investment. Um, corporate investment, uh, but, but there's still a lack in uh, for Series A, Series B, so venture capital yeah. basically is still a yeah. huge gap. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the analytics and the numbers. Uh, with your 100 startups, I think you're a valuable source of information. The numbers that I use when I talk about public and private investments are pretty simple. So I mostly explain that in public companies, you can say 12% of the companies create positive returns, while 88% are rubbish. Um, and the, 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 the magic is finding the 12%. And Warren Buffett, for right. example, is excellent in that. And yes. when I talk about private investments, my numbers are that when a VC fund invests in 10 companies, um, three to four are bound to fail. 
three to four will do okay. Uh, they will return the investment and a bit more. And two to three companies will be the big winners. So they will be the unicorns who uh, create the mesmerizing returns of 10x. And when a VC is lucky, maybe one is a real unicorn with 100 to 200x uh, return on investment. Now you mentioned that you're involved with uh, angel groups close to Stanford, right. close to LA. So it's still the, I think, the motherland of venture capital and angel investing. Yeah. And you, with your groups, have invested in 100 companies. Uh, what are your statistics? What did you see return-wise? Yeah, so I don't have the numbers offhand, but um, I actually wrote a uh, one of my articles mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of this year in March. And the, the biggest problem with investing in startups is everyone asks you, how are you doing? And like with, with public stocks, I can, I can go on, on uh, Google or Yahoo or you know, CNBC. And I can tell you today, you know, <laughs> am I up or am, am I down? Uh, even real estate, I could go into Zillow and I could say, yeah, this is roughly how much uh, my, my, uh, my real estate portfolio is worth. Um, startups, you don't know. Um, and you won't know for roughly 10 years. And I've only been doing angel investing for 12 years. And of course, most people have only been doing it for like three or four, right? So you invest in companies and there's something called the J-curve that throws people off. Um, and it's kind of frustrating. Uh, so the J-curve says your failures come quick and your successes take a long time. And the bigger the success is, the longer it takes. Mm -hmm. So um, the ones that fail tend to fail quickly. Right. They were going to build something. It didn't work. They run out of money. End of story. Uh, I lost my money. So what tends to happen is in the first and I got in, into angel investing, I said, I have this pot of money and this is how much I'm going to invest. Um, and I'll split it up like uh, first year, second year, third year. And then after the third year, I should start getting returns and I can use that to invest in the next ones afterwards. Uh, I got to the end of three years. And I'm completely out of money. Um, I had no returns yet. Like one gave me my money back and like uh, two or three of them failed completely. And the others are just like, well, we're, you know, we're, we're on our, we went from pre-seed to seed, right? So, you know, hopefully in another couple of years, we'll get to series A, another mm -hmm. two or three years after that, we'll get to series B. And one day <laughs> you'll get a return. And most people don't get that, right? You don't get any money back until the company exits. You can't get out of your investment. Um, so it's dead money. So earlier this year, I went back and I said, how have I been doing? And, and I did this exercise January 1st. And I said, okay, I had this first three years. And after the first three years, I ran out of money from my, my pot of investment. And I stopped for a couple of years after that. So I had this nice cohort of about 10 investments. And I went back and I said, how have those 10 investments done? Uh, roughly half of them, uh, I wish I had it in front of me, but say three or four of them failed. It was about 10 investments, about three or four of them failed. Uh, about three or four of them got me my money back or some fraction of it. Uh, and one gave, uh, two of them gave me a 2X. So, mm -hmm. After and then two of them were still left, and I know my numbers don't add up, right? But um, of those eight, um, it was roughly half failures and half money back, with a little, plus a little bit more. Uh, so I had broken even after ten years, but I still had two left. 
like, okay, well, at least I broke even, right? If I invest in real estate, I would have done a lot better. If I invest in Netflix, I would have done a lot better. Good thing that's not my retirement money. Uh, and if I get my money back, great, because really I'm just trying to help startups. Um, and then three months after that, one of those two uh, had a 20X return. Wow. Like, Suddenly, my uh, after 10 years, my break-even investment turned out to be a, uh, you add them all together, that 20X out of, out of uh, mm -hmm. 10, then I had a 2X return. So roughly about the same as public stocks. And I still have one left, and I'm waiting to see uh, how they do. And the other ones kind of are following in that same pattern. Um, so I think the numbers are, are pretty close. The expectation is that... Uh, the, and the number that's always quoted is 90% will fail. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean fail outright. That means not. So about half of those will actually fail outright and give you no return. And then another four will give you something like your money back, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. So we call that a failure anyway, even though they haven't really, it wasn't a complete failure. And that last one is the one. Um, and if it's just a 10x return, all you've done is now gotten your money back, right? So it needs to be 100x return. So we're, and that's kind of the mentality of the VCs is we don't want a 10x return. We're, I mean, and 10x return is great, but that's not what we're shooting for. We have to shoot for the 100x return. Yeah. That's because cool. if our one success is a 10x return, all we've done is gotten our money back for the fund. No, I think I mean, couldn't agree more because for the VCs, I think the hurdle rate for, uh, they have to beat this Berkshire Hathaway. Basically, Airbnb yeah. has the potential to invest directly in the S&P 500. I think it's 10 to 12 yes. percent, depending on the time yeah. of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Berkshire delivers solidly 20 percent. Yeah. And now we also have uh, this risk-free interest rate back, which I think in the United yeah. States is close to 5 percent currently. It's five. Yeah. Yeah. And when VCs don't shoot for the 100x and uh, also assuming yeah. the 90 percent failure rate, uh, yes. they have no chance of... Right returning the more than 20% that they'd be expect. Yeah, so they need to be shooting for 20 to 25% after fees. <laughs> Their fees are pretty substantial. So um, they're looking for unicorns and a lot of startup founders don't get that. So we get a lot of pitches mm. that will show us kind of fall into two, kind of, two categories that don't really work. One is we have a great business. It's going to be profitable. We'll generate, you know, 10%, 20% returns every year, continuing on. It's just like, nice. That is not a venture business. That is a great business. That is not a venture investment. We're looking for uh, an acquisition or an IPO at a, at a high multiple. Um, that's just the nature of the business. The other ones uh, tend to be, uh, we've got a great business. Uh, we have a great product. Uh, it's going to take five years and Google's going to buy us out for uh, for 5x. You're going to get 5x your money back. And they think that's wonderful. And like, you know, if you could guarantee me 5x my money back in, in five years, absolutely, that is wonderful. But the odds of them actually getting that are one in 10. So I need 50x. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is pretty. Uh, I mean, th I think the big learnings from what you said for everybody who wants to get their feet wet with angel investing is one, it's a long game, so it's not yes. that you get your money back next year. So it's like yes. like a, a savings account. Uh, right. It's minimum ten years, and yes. the expectation must be that it probably doesn't create right away this mesmerizing return, so that people right. have to wait at least for ten years to see something coming back. Yep. And uh, which is more or less, in many cases, breaking even a little bit above that. 
Is it yeah. the, the right understanding for angel investors? Absolutely. You got it. <laughs> and <laughs> and most new angel investors don't know that. I didn't know that when I got started. Like I said, I thought everyone said, well, return, returns are three to five years. So you'll start getting your first returns after three years. Then you'll get your full after five years. It's more like it's five to 12 years. So you start getting some returns after five years. And then the bigger ones that actually make the difference tend to be in years seven, nine, 11. Um, so it, it it's a very long game. And uh, also a learning is uh, don't go all in. Don't go all in on don't go all in. Don't, investing. Don't, don't bet your retirement on it. This is, uh, this is your extra money. And even... So you hear about these venture funds that they've got a billion dollars to invest or a hundred million dollars to invest. And you think, well, it's a lot of money. Um, and the people that are investing in them are retirement funds and uh, university endowments and corporations. And what you find is they typically will say, we have to put most, you know, half of our money has to go into bonds. Uh, it's safe. We need to be able to pay people. Um, and then like another 40% goes into uh, public stocks because we need to juice our returns a little bit. And we'll put something like 3% into venture capital. But you, <laughs> these, these organizations have so much money that 3% ends up being tens of millions of dollars that they can invest in, in venture funds. So, um, but even, even them, it's, yeah, we're only 3% of our money goes into venture capital. Uh, mine's a little bit more than that, but it is not a, a huge amount. So I, I kind of, I, I think of it as almost like a part-time job, right? As, uh, and it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of work mm -hmm. uh, yeah. to find the companies and really investigate them to, to make sure that they're worth investing in. I'm, I'm curious um, to understand a little bit better the angel mentality in, in California. Um, you said your group invests in a lot of uh, startups. Why not directly in a venture fund? Wouldn't it be much more comfortable to just delegate the task and say, okay, let's take the money from the angel group, put it in a venture fund and let uh, just other people do the hard work <laughs> and then they should come back in 10 years and deliver mesmerizing returns. Wouldn't that be much uh, easier than investing directly yourself in a company or doing the work with the angel group where you also have to do the due diligence process in, in your yes. area of expertise yourself would be not much yeah. easier to go into a venture uh, fund? So that's probably most people, uh, <laughs> especially like what was called family offices. Mm -hmm. so people, very rich people would have um, or their families have kind of an operation to to do investing. And for the most part, they, you know, they allocate some of them just like, you know, the, the, the big corporations. They allocate some amount to bonds, some amount to public stocks and some amount to venture funds. And then they go off on cruise to Italy and uh, and have a nice life. Europe is uh, beautiful. I completely agree. Europe is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you should you should go go to Austria and have Christian show you around. There's lots to see. Um, the people who are angel investors are well. There's kind of two categories. Uh, one is kind of the the not real angel investors, but people who are. Um, just kind of on the periphery, people send pitch decks. They're like, that's nice. Um, I think it's a great idea. I'll give you a little bit of money. Um, and then there's kind of groups like us that do this on a regular basis, ongoing, and expect to make uh, you know a fair number of investments over the course of the year. We do it because we enjoy it. 
We do it because uh, we want to be part of the ecosystem. We want to work with the founders. We want to get in at a stage earlier than the venture funds, which need to invest five, ten million dollars at a time, can do. Um, and we we live vicariously through these startups. You know, a lot of us are retired, um, and we don't want the work of creating our own startups ourselves, and and don't have the time to do it. Um, but we like to be more involved than just giving money to a fund. Uh, we want to hear the pitches. We want to see what's going on. We want to work with the founders. We, you know, we don't like the the work itself of calling up their customers and saying, you know, does it work or not? But we like the process of being able to find startups that we believe in and um, feeling like we have some tie to it. And and that's I think the important thing. You just put money in a fund; it's an investment. If you're doing angel investing now you in some way feel some responsibility for that company. You were in some way a part of that company's success. And if you want to ask me about companies in clean tech, um, I have a nice list of them that I've invested in and I am proud of all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will go out and I will I will help them in any way that, that I can. I will introduce them to customers. If I hear people, I will introduce them to other investors. So you become part of the company and that's um, an unpaid part, but um, you're 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 tied into their success, and you kind of live through their success. I mean, I understand this this uh, this middle ground. I mean, at one point in time, uh, you probably say when you have uh, created your own startups, you are CEO. Did you say, okay, I don't want to get my hands too dirty anymore? Right. Let's right. let's 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 the younger generation do the work. Yes. Uh, let me rephrase the question a little bit and come from another angle. Uh, okay. Your groups and you, you have a lot of expertise. You looked at many companies, you said 100 investments, so probably you looked at thousands of companies yeah. in the process of the last 10 years with your group. Um, yep. Have you ever thought about uh, turning your angel groups into a fund and also offer it to institutions to say, okay, give us your money and uh, we have a deal flow? There has been some discussion. So we have a fund, right? Mm-hmm. So we pool our money. Uh, and so we'll either invest as individuals. So let me give you an example. A uh, company comes through. Um, we look at them. We we have a fund. Um, so TCA Los Angeles has a fund that's th- $3 million. Um, we'll typically do 10 investments over the course of the year. They'll usually be like $300,000 each. Um, and at the end of the year, we use up the fund and we start a new fund. So that fund is pooled money from, you know, the 150 investors in the group, um, in different amounts. And we, in, in, and then based on how much money you put in, that gives you your, your voting rights in deciding, uh, whether to, to invest in a, in a startup or not. Um, there's been, uh, oh, and there's no fees involved, right? So if you put money in a venture fund, you, they're professionals, but you know they, they have to make money out of it, right? So they make money by taking 2% of the fund every year to cover the cost of the employees and the operations, mm-hmm. and then 20% of the um, uh, of the success as a success day, and that's the, that's the big money. So um, we don't take fees other than the actual operational cost of like, paying for legal fees or accounting or stuff like that. So um, first of all, there's no fees. If we took money from outside uh, people uh, or outside groups, and that gave us more money to invest with, I mean, that's, that's good, but we'd have to, we'd have to charge them for it. Right. So there'd need to be a fee structure and that kind of adds some complication to the process, but more importantly, then we're now feeling like we're responsible to other people. 
And that kind of changes when you ask me a difference between a VC fund and angel investors. As angel investors, we uh, are only responsible to ourselves and we don't have mm -hmm. to justify why we invest in something um, other than we think it's a good idea. Um, and so that gives us a different mentality than a v VC fund does. And I wrote about that this week, that the VC funds have to invest in things that they think their investors um, are going to find attractive because they need to put out reports on a quarterly basis and say, here's what we invested in and why we invested in them. And when they fail, because 90% of them will fail, they have to be able to say, yeah, that wasn't a bad investment. It didn't work out, sorry, but it was a good investment. Um, and that kind of reduces their flexibility to invest in things that might be a little bit different or interesting um, because they kind of have to follow the herd uh, because when it fails, they need to say, yeah, everybody else thought it was a great idea too, but yeah, sorry. Um, and so not having to justify why we invest in something to anyone other than ourselves kind of changes the mentality. And, and I don't think we want to do that. Uh, that said, there's quite a few people who are angel investors who've been successful as angel investors. And they say, well, I'm doing all this work myself. I'm in doing the invest. I'm finding the companies. I'm doing the investigations. Uh, I'm joining the board of the companies, but the amount of money I can put in is limited. Um, if I take money from other people, um, I can make this into a part-time job or even a full-time job. And so a lot of the small funds, I mean, you hear about the big funds by, you know, like um, A16Z or Coastal Ventures, you know, where they have billions of dollars to, to play with. Uh, but there's also a lot of small funds out there that might be a $10 million fund or even a $2 million fund, uh, which tend to be one person who started as an angel investor and then um, got some of his friends and or other people uh, be able to go back and say, you know, here's my success over the past 10 years. Um, I can do something similar for, for you. Uh, why don't you give me a little bit of money and I will, in, I will invest it for you in the same things that I am investing in personally. Uh, and so a lot of the small funds do work that way. Uh, back to my example. Uh, so, something comes through as a group, we may invest $300,000, but then we'll also pull uh, individual investments. So if the fund says this is a great idea, um, and I really believe in it as well, uh, in not just using my fund money, um, but I may also invest some amount myself. And so typically we'll put together like another $200,000 from uh, our uh, group members and end up making a total of $500,000 investment. Mm -hmm. And then we'll recommend it to uh, our sister organ. So I'm in TCA Los Angeles. There's TCA Orange County. And then there's Pasadena Angels, uh, which are part of our same group. And so we'll we'll send them over to those groups, which have their own fund and their own uh, um, individual investments as well. And together, we may put together a million-dollar investment. Now, for, for, for uh, a VC fund, that's small. And it's a lot of work because now you've got you know, 20, 30 people that are all like making individual decisions instead of just one fund saying, you know, here's a check for $2 million or $5 million. But we can invest in things that the funds won't invest in. We can invest in an earlier stage than funds typically can. So one advantage of your investment stand then is to go in much earlier than VCs usually do. I mean, VCs usually don't take the first risk. And the second thing is that you can also invest in 5, 10, 20, 30x perspectives and don't necessarily need to go for the 100 or 200 X perspective, because you don't have any LPs in that you have to satisfy. Yeah, so 
uh, kind of three, right? So yes, uh, we can go in earlier for things that we think will scale, but uh, they're not at the size where they're ready for a $2 million or $5 million check from a, from a VC fund. Um, we can invest in things that uh, are, are lower risk or further along um, that uh, are too small. They will never need a $5 million check. Um, they need a million dollars to get to the point where uh, where somebody can acquire them for $50 million. VCs won't be interested in that. That's great for angel investing. And the last one is kind of things that uh, don't fit the VC mindset. Um, it's not in their sweet spot. It's not in an area of expertise. Uh, it maybe is a little bit too off the wall. It might be things like organic cider, right? You know, they just don't, it doesn't, it's not software. It doesn't fit in, 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 in the venture funds, <laughs> but we can invest in it because it looks like a great opportunity. Why not? Um, so again, we can invest in it because it's something we believe in. We think is interesting, um, even if it's even if we can't justify it to other people. Uh, let me ask you another question about the startup world. Uh, since your groups and you are doing uh, your job very diligently and you are not the the typical angel investor that I very often meet in Europe or family office who occasionally invests in a startup. Right. So you really have a uh, sort of due diligence process. Uh, yes. What are the three biggest mistakes that you have seen with startups when they approach investors that uh, can easily be fixed, but startups don't do that? What are the three biggest mistakes they make when pitching to yeah, you? Yeah, so the first one is easy, and I keep writing about it over and over and over <laughs> again because I keep seeing it over and over and over again, especially in hard tech where you have scientists doing the, the, the pitch. <laughs> Um, and they have the idea of, we've invented a great product. And I want to tell you all about this product. And they'll spend 10 minutes telling us about how wonderful the product is. And the advice I always give them is, it is not about the product. It is absolutely not about the product. It's not even about the business. It's about the investment. You are selling something. You're not selling a product. We're not customers. You are selling stock in your, in your company. And you need to tell us why we should buy stock in your company. And that's because we're going to make money from stock in your company. So the pitch is not about how great product it is. It's about why this is the best investment you're going to see in, in years. Why this is the one that's going to have the 100x return. The product's part of that. Um, you know, you, it, There's not going to be a business unless there's a product. So there needs to be a product. There needs to be a, uh, a market. There needs to be a real need. Um, but those are just kind of the precursors to get you to having a good business. And then, so it's like, how do we scale the business from zero to a hundred? Um, and then somebody's going to buy you. Who's going to buy you? Why are they going to buy you? How much are they going to buy you for? Um, why is this going to be the one investment out of, uh, out of 10 or a hundred that's going to be, uh, uh, have a great return. So that's what the pitch is about. It's a, it, it's selling stock in the business to investors who are looking for a return. And it's not about the product. So start with the product, um, but that's, don't, tell, don't spend your whole pitch on the product. Spend one third of your pitch on the product. Um, second is, and this is, so I started off as an engineer, but I've spent most of my career as a technical marketing person. And so this is my particular bias, but I see too much again in hard tech that is this attitude of, um, kind of ties into, we'll build the product, right? It's all about the product. Um, it's not about the product. It's about the, it's about the market. It's about the customers. And they have this attitude of, if we build it, customers will come. 
<laughs> if it happens, great. Um, and, and, and life sciences, it is that way, right? If you invent a better uh, cure for cancer, you don't need to go out and market it. You just need to get it through FDA approvals and, you know, you'll be worth a billion dollars. Um, but when it well, comes to... There are so to, many ways to fail. <laughs> there are so, so, many many so many other ways to fail. But the usual way to fail for not life sciences is you, you may have a great product, but you haven't figured out how to get it to customers. And you haven't even figured out who your customers are. So they talk about the invention, they talk about the patents, they talk about the technology. I don't, I need to know those things, but I want to talk about the customers. Who's the customer? Why do they need it? How are they going to buy it? How are you going to get it to them? Um, how are you going to find them? Um, and so again, this is my marketing person bias, but to me, the marketing is more important than the product itself. If you don't have customers, it doesn't matter if you've got the greatest invention in the world. Um, and You could have the stupidest invention in the world. In fact, most unicorns, to be honest, are really stupid things, right? Um, you know, clothing kits, right? Or, or meal kits. That's not rocket science. <laughs> But they get buy a, bought out for a billion dollars, right? Um, and have they really added to the happiness of the world? Yeah, I don't really think so. <laughs> But they've found a billion dollars worth of customers. Congratulations. The investors have gotten, have gotten rich. Um, You can have a really, really simple idea, but if you if you have a lot of customers for it, if you know how to market, if you can build up a brand name, you can make a lot of money, and that's what investors are looking for. So, uh, and if you don't do those things, you're going to fail. It doesn't matter how great your product is. If you don't have customers, you don't have a business. Um, and somebody five years later will come along with uh, with exactly the same thing. You'll be like, I invented that. That was mine. Like, yeah, but you didn't find the customer. So it it really is about the business. And I tend to look for startups that have, especially technical startups that have uh, co-founders that have the technology side, but also the business side. And I see too many that are just like, well, I've got a PhD, I'm a smart person and you are really smart and I'll go to an accelerator and I'll learn all about business and pitching and you know, it's technical products. So I can talk to the customers and um, And then I'll hire a sales guy at some point. It's like, no, 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 no. Marketing is just as tough as building a product. And if you don't do the marketing, you're not going to be successful. So you really need somebody who is understands the marketing, not the sales, but the marketing. Figuring out the strategy, understanding the uh, the the you know the dynamics of the industry, who the distributors and resellers are, who the thought leaders are, who the customers are, how to price it, how to how to find the keywords that people are are going to get excited to find you online. These are it, it, it's easier than building a new cathode uh, for a lithium ion battery, but it's it, it's not something you're going to pick up in three months in an accelerator either. You need a business person who knows how to build a startup. Um, And then the last one, and I see this a lot, is especially for 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 young people. Venture capital is great. Venture capital can give you a lot of money, and and I include angel investing in there um, as a way to build your business. But it is not the only way, and it is not the right way for a lot of startups. And everyone just has this idea of. I've got a great business. I got a great idea. I just need a pitch deck. I'll go find money and then we'll build a business. And I see so many great businesses that really shouldn't take venture capital because it doesn't 
venture capital is a very specific way of building a business of we're going to take a lot of money, we're going to grow as fast as we can, we're going to get acquired as fast as we can so we can make a lot of money selling our stock. That is great if you have something that can grow quickly and be acquired quickly for a large multiple, that's the way to go. Uh, I see a lot that are really solid businesses that will generate a lot of profitability, but they're not protectable, right? There's no patents, there's no brand name, uh, or they're too small, right? The market is just not a billions of dollars. Um, so they can build a nice $25 million business. They can be generating $5 million of profits a year. That's not interesting to for an acquisition. So you can build a business that for the next 20 years will be generating $5 million in, in profits. That is not something that venture investors want to invest in. But there are other ways to build that business. So kind of think through your business and what your plans are, what your goals are, and the best way to build a business and say, is venture the way to do that? Or do I want to go for grants? Do I want to uh, kind of self-fund it? Do I want to, uh, especially with technical products, we can often get uh, customers to prepay for something. If they need enough, they will prepay engineering for it. Um, uh, or we can be consultants for, for companies and help them build it and keep the technology and sell it to other people. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to build a business. It's not as easy as going to a fund and getting a check for $5 million and then going to hire people. But it can your chance of success uh, will also be a lot higher. So um, venture is not the only way to build a good business. And for a lot of a lot of startups, it is not the right way of doing it. So kind of think those things through. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, especially at the last point. So venture is a speciality. And I think it became a little bit too much attention in the last five years or six years due to the missing interest rates on the market. Yes, there are a lot of possibilities yes. to make money with a company. When I was in commercial school back in the 80s and 90s, uh, venture was not in the school books. So it was basically right. build a product. And now that's all they teach percent. in school. Yeah, yeah, they have entrepreneur programs. Every school has an entrepreneur program. And it's pretty much an accelerator that says, here that's how to do a pitch deck to go out and get venture investing. It's like, but you're building a chain of nail salons. That's yeah. great. That's wonderful. I, I support you, but that is not going to get venture funding. Unless you come up with a way of, of being a unique brand that then you can scale the brand, right? That's kind of a different story. Yeah, it's something like Steve Jobs did, I think, with with Apple and and the iPhone. So this is uh, also was not clearly a venture case. I mean, putting a putting a smartphone or putting a new mobile phone into a market that's declining. This was really interesting in two thousand six when we talk about yeah. uh, marketing stories. Let's switch. Let's switch to the main main act in this mm -hmm. podcast. Your book. First, my first question about your book is: I mean, your uh, you're a pretty busy man. So you have a lot of investments, angel groups. What was the reason that you sat down, uh, reserved some time? For three years. Wrote a mystery novel? <laughs> For three years, three years. Yes. What was the reason uh, you did it? So I had just sold my, uh, my last company and I said, mm -hmm. well, what am I going to do next? Um, and I didn't have anything lined up. Um, I, in fact, I couldn't start working at another company yet because I had a transition period. Uh, and I've always, I've always been a writer. Uh, that's kind of uh, mostly kind of technical marketing, but, um, uh, I've always enjoyed writing, uh, and I've always wanted to write uh, a novel. I've actually written a couple of other novels in my spare time that didn't get published. So I said, okay, 
now I'm at a point in my life I actually can part time work on uh, work on a novel. I went back and I got a uh, went back to school uh, to a master's program in creative writing, uh, so that I would have some deadlines and I would have uh, other people around me being writers as well. Um, and that kind of forced me to work on it. I, and if I didn't have the school program, I would have given up multiple times um, because it, I, I hit a dead end a few times. We're just like, this is not working. This is horrible. And you give up, uh, almost quit. Um, but I kept going and going and going and finally got to the point where it was flowing. It was working. Um, but it was, uh, it really comes down to, I always wanted to be a, uh, a novelist, but never really had the the time to do it. So now I had the time to do it. And I thought, well, what should I write about? I mean, um, I could write about anything I want to write about, but what do I know? Well, uh, Silicon Valley startup and all the craziness of, of Silicon Valley. And let's, let's just write this really crazy story about Silicon Valley that, uh, that's a lot of fun to, to read. And so that's what I started working on. Yeah. It's like this uh, dystopian thrill I read on the internet. Uh, yes. I decided to not before the podcast to not finish the book because it would be tempting to me to just give away the ending. So <laughs> I, I, I'm at page 122 and uh, thank God okay. you didn't stop it. It's really a great book. It's it's so fun to read. Um, there was one question that popped up in my mind when I think if I read the first 2025 20, pages of Super It reminded me a little bit so, so the way you started the story and explained it. The first thought that I had in my mind, okay, I mean, uh, was it inspired by uh, Theranos and Theranos? FBX? Theranos. Theranos. Um, yeah. So I started writing the novel before Theranos mm-hmm. uh, or before people knew about. Uh, the the fraud of Theranos. And I had this startup that was doing some evil things, um, but I couldn't figure out how they would hide that, right? Uh, They were doing some really bad things. Uh, So how would would they, uh, you know, what, what would be the dynamics inside the company? And right in the middle of writing it, the Theranos scandal broke, uh, first in the Wall Street Journal, and then the book Bad Blood came out. And I'm like, so I had already had the, the original version uh, was was quite a bit different, where the founder of the, the president of the company was Satoshi Nakamoto. And uh, uh, Katie, who's mm-hmm. is now the founder of uh, of uh, of Super Duper, uh, was uh, one of the employees who is who is kind of giving away the inside information. So. When Theranos broke, I'm like, oh, 80 is is Elizabeth Holmes. She's exactly like Elizabeth Holmes. And here is the playbook for how she's going to hide uh, what she's doing, because what she's doing is 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 evil. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and why she would justify it to herself and how she would. Um, and you'll start to see that through the second half of the book. Um, you start to find out how she is hidden what she's doing and um and justifying what she's doing as being a a good thing rather than evil another great thing that i liked in your book is that you mixed some cartoons into the into the plot into the storyline how did you come up with this idea uh well the main character uh, is a big fan of of manga the the main character Mm -hmm. is a japanese american uh and um quite a few of 
the interactions with him and his ex-girlfriend come back to One Piece manga, which he was they were both fans of his kids. She had been a drawing person who drew as well. And I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to actually have a few scenes done in the style of One Piece manga, a very specific style of One Piece manga. Um, and which style, make which those, style is it? Uh, so it, it's kids or, or teen, boy teen adventure manga. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried to replicate that in, in the story. I can't draw. I absolutely cannot draw. So I had to hire somebody. It took me, uh, I, I hired five separate people before I found somebody who understood what I was trying to get and, and drew it the way I wanted it to. So, um, that wasn't easy. And when I finished, I started showing the book to agents and publishers like, well, we can't put manga in there. Uh, it can't be done. No one's done it. It's uh, it's a mess. It's a disaster. Uh, so I stripped it all out. And I started showing it to agents and publishers. And uh, they're like, well, it's about Silicon Valley. We don't publish books about Silicon Valley. So I finally found this one publisher, Panda Moon. Like, yeah, this is this is exactly what we we look for. And they had seen the version without the, the manga in it, where the dream sequences were just described as, mm-hmm. as in text. And then I said, you know, the original version had had some manga in there. You know, what would you think of that? And I thought they were going to say, yeah, same thing as everybody else. Production-wise, it's a disaster. We can't do that. They're like, oh, well, that's different and interesting. We love mashups. So let's, let's throw that in there. So I gave them the manga, and they put it back in. Um, it turned out to be a real mess for, for production, right? Um, trying, especially the ebook version, trying to get the graphics oh, yeah, to yeah. come out well. Um, was so in print it's a lot easier but in ebook it's really a mess and uh i i think they regret their decision <laughs> for the amount of work it took um but uh it, it does make the book somewhat uh different and distinctive i think no it's it's fun it's fun to read i love it i love it so after Thank the podcast, you. I can I can finish uh, the the second half. There's another yes. question I would like to ask you. I mean, I, I love reading American books. So I mean, my bookshelf is uh-huh. full with uh, with originals from America, and uh-huh. I realized the tendency with U.S. based writers that they seem to enjoy to use German words in their writing. Mm. What what is the reason why do Americans sometimes uh, use German words? What what is what 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 do you want to express with that? I think you also have some some mm-hmm. some parts in your book. Uh, two or three, I think I discovered two or three words in in German. Really? Okay. Um, so super duper, of course, has the umlauts mm-hmm. on there, mm-hmm. which make mm-hmm. it look like um, German-ish. Um, but that's really German-ish. making fun of U- U- Uber, right? The, yeah. Because originally the company ah. was a competitor to Uber, so they yeah. were super duper because they're they're revolutionizing transportation, which is what. Uh, Uber, ah, before okay. it turned into a regular company, um, really was a startup that was revolutionizing transportation. No one was going to own cars anymore. They were going to have robot uh, self-driving vehicles, mm-hmm. um, and they were just going to take over everything with transportation. Uh, they turned into a meal delivery company. But you know, <laughs> but when I started writing it, they were taking over the transportation industry. So Super Duper was a takeoff on on Uber, even though they don't look like it in. In, internally so the umlauts went on there because it's uber right um why that's a you know why uber is using the german word well you know superman and uh ubermensch and you know mm-hmm. I, I, you're, you're probably laughing at my pronunciation but um there's there's some a, a amount of german words that have made their way into american consciousness 
Ah, okay, that's 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 good to know. Um, how much research did you need to do for writing this book? Uh, uh not very much mm. because this is. I mean, it's it. It's about Silicon Valley. I know Silicon Valley well. Uh, it's about Japanese culture. I know Japanese culture well. Um, so I didn't need to do a lot of research. Um, Theranos gave me kind of the blueprint that I needed for uh, for what was happening. Um, but every day while I'm writing, I've got Wikipedia open to double check things. I've got Street View open to kind of check the, the view. I've got maps because maps are really critical to the story of where things are and how he's moving from place to place. Um, and I probably spent as much time looking at those things and checking the details as as uh, as I am writing. So you could say it's fifty percent research, or you could say it's zero research. I'm just double checking things. Uh, I did have to go up to the area and drive around and see people and check restaurants and get a feel for places uh, a few times while I was while I was doing it. But um, you know, if I lived there, which you normally would if you're writing about a very specific place, I would just be like walking outside and seeing things. So. Um, Research, research, not very much. Uh, there is some discussion in there of uh, particle physics, mm-hmm. um, and that's how the, the system works. Um, a little research, not very much. Anyone who knows particle physics will just completely laugh at uh, how this uh, device is supposed to work. Um, and the original version had like 10 pages of description of how it would work and how it and, and kind of the whole philosophy behind um, how the system would would work because it was it was it was about philosophy more than and and kind of the whole um, mm-hmm. the the Schrodinger's cat right okay so there's one of the Schrodinger's cat uh, story um, which ties into particle physics and and the whole you know what is reality versus what is non reality um, but there was a lot in there and everyone's just like, ah, this stuff is boring. So I took 90% of it out and just like, yeah, it works this way. That's the end of it. And you know, you know, I'm not going to try and justify it. That's, that's not what the story's about. There's also a love story in the book. Uh, I mean, there is. The, yeah. Two, two, two men, one woman. Uh, what was the decision to put a little bit of uh, a romance into it? Gotta keep it interesting. Right. <laughs> um, so as I was working on kind of figuring out how to write a mystery, because I'm not never a mystery writer before, one of the things um, as a professor at the, the school said was mystery is tough because every chapter has to accomplish two things. One is you have to uh, develop the character. Mm-hmm. And number two is you have to develop the plot. Most stories, you can do one or the other. It's either about the plot and, and the plot moves forward and the characters don't need to be developed uh, or it's just, you know, it, it's literary fiction and you just write about the character and every every chapter is about developing the character and their journey. Mystery, you have to do both at the same time. Um, so I needed to give him some, some grounding. Um, and I think it also, it's one of the things that drives him, right? I mean, he's the main character, uh, Ted Hara, is, is a geek. <laughs> Um, uh, he will tell you that himself. Sort of. He's uh he's he's a hacker, uh he's a programmer, he's a you know, he's got a degree, master's degree in mathematics. He is not good at dealing with people. He is horrible at dealing with people. 
Uh, and he knows that and he wants to get beyond that, but it's very difficult for him. And so having um, his ex-girlfriend that he's still kind of in love with um, be the foil for him, I think really helped develop the story because she could do things that he can't do and he could do things that she can't do. And I liked having them together, but also that tension between them of uh, being ex-boyfriend and girlfriend, but still really being in love with each other, but not being able to figure out how they could be together kind of added a, another layer to the story beyond just like who did it and what's going on in this crazy startup. Why? Let me, I mean, I understood. I mean, it, it's nice to start with this, this love story. So I can relate to that. Uh, I think everybody has an accent uh, uh, in our times and uh, is familiar with the development or the complex complications when uh, doing something together with, with an ex-partner. And then suddenly you bring up a, a second man, <laughs> a, a policeman uh, into this story, into this already complicated yes. story. Uh, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, they have to solve a problem. And then comes uh, a second man into the plot. <laughs> somebody somebody <laughs> else who's, who's in love with, uh, with uh, her. Yeah. Um, I didn't do that on purpose. That just kind of happened as I was writing. Uh, and, and a lot of things in the book just kind of happened as mm -hmm. it was as I was writing. Sometimes they screwed up the story and I had to like go back, throw away the 50 pages and say, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, that didn't work. Uh, this one worked out um, that uh, having that rivalry there kind of pushed him in in certain ways that he needed to be pushed. No, I like it because it was an unexpected turn. It didn't absolutely, it did absolutely not expect it. So I was, okay. uh, when, I, when I was reading, I thought, okay, I mean, I can relate to the story about a startup. I can, right. uh, it's popular in my mind, Theranos or FD, I mean, FDX is currently a little bit more popular right. than Theranos. So I saw some similarities at the beginning and said, well, maybe it goes down the road. I don't know yet. I'm halfway through. Um, and then there was this love story because I expected ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, and uh, mm -hmm. someone they're looking for and someone. Rival. <laughs> and then comes up the, the police where they thought, how complicated is that now? <laughs> yeah, Completely yeah. unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty complicated story for a book that isn't all that long. Yeah. Um, maybe too complicated at times, but, you know, I think, stuff I happens. Think, I think it, it, it builds in, for me, it it moving in a, nice, in a nice tension, a nice tension. I mean, this part yeah. when they have their private the personal speech here i think it at the buddhist temple uh or at the tea house i've uh, forgotten a little bit about that uh, it's really good read it's really good read. Fun to read let me ask you another question a little bit uh going away from the storyline i don't want to give it away right now people should buy the book and read the book <laughs> thank you uh, yes. so let's uh, this is the also the reason why i stop it i'm just i think i'm too honest so i would uh, after finishing it i would i would just simply give it away uh, <laughs> Uh, which doesn't make sense on a podcast. Um, you reached out to me with the question if I can host you on a podcast. Let's talk a little bit at the end of this podcast about the importance of social media in B2B marketing these days, on one yes. hand for writers, but also on the other hand for startups. Yep. Uh, you have also a background in B2B marketing. Yep. If I remember one of your latest posts, right? Um how useful is social media these days for business-to-business -business marketing? Uh, you know, 20 years ago, if you didn't have a website, you didn't exist. That was kind of a, a saying. And, and now it's just a true. In fact, now it's so true that you don't even need a website anymore because people don't, don't uh, necessarily look at your website as the first thing. They do look at your social media. Um, and 
again, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before, especially for like hard tech, people think it's about the product. You, if you build it, they will come. Um, and that's not true. You have to find customers or you have to find ways to get customers to find you. Uh, a lot of people think, so here's the difference between sales and market, right? Sales thinks I have a product. I, I can make a list of the potential customers. I can call them up. I can email them. I can tell them what I have. And then they will, uh, they'll be like, wonderful. Great. Tell me more. That's a salesman mentality. I'm a marketing person. Um, I don't want to make cold calls. I don't want to try to reach out to people who I don't know, who don't want to talk to me. Um, what I want to do is get them to find me. And the sales process becomes so much easier when they find you and they're like, that's exactly what I need. Let me call these guys and find out more details. And then they're your friends. You do the demo. And they And it's so much easier than kind of going the, the salesperson route, especially for a startup. Because when you're a startup, they don't know who you are. You try calling them. They're like, yeah, I don't know you. Sorry, I'm busy. Um, marketing is key. And social media is key to marketing nowadays. Now, it kind of depends on what you're doing. It's it's interesting. Uh, my wife is on Instagram all day. I'm on LinkedIn all day, and we kind of meet in the middle at at, at Twitter. Um, <laughs> and then she does flower arrangements. She does ikebana, um, mm. and Instagram is the place to be for that. It used to be Facebook. Now it's Instagram. She puts her arrangements up there. She has. I don't know. Thousands of people all over the world see her, uh, see her arrangements, see see her exhibitions, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, I want to do that too." Um, how do I sign up for a class or something like that? Um, that's consumer marketing. <laughs> for B two B marketing, it's mostly LinkedIn um, because that's where people are going to find out about new ideas, new things that are changing. Um, but it's also Medium is a great place as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know if you consider Medium to be a social social media. I do. It's a great place to not promote your product, but promote yourself. And not promote yourself as I am the expert at this, but um, to go on to, and, and same thing in, in LinkedIn. So you can use LinkedIn in two ways. One is as sales. I can reach out. I Here's my list of people. Here's the titles they have. I can find them. I can get them into my network and I can I can shoot them a message and say, here's why you should be interested in what we do. Um, you probably, you know, you're, you're, it's better than email, but your response rate is going to be low. The other way you're doing it is the marketing way. I'm going to write a post about some great new technology I've been, uh, that our company has invented, but I'm not going to talk about our company. I'm going to talk about why Adding silicon to lithium-ion batteries will will uh, is the wave of the future and is going to enable batteries to be twice as uh, store twice as much and be able to uh, charge twice as fast and be ten times safer and it's going to change the world. Wow! Now everyone who is involved in the in the lithium-ion battery space wants to read that. They don't want to read about your company. They don't want to read about you. They want to read about how silicon batteries technology is advancing and what's new there and how that's going to change uh, change the world and make a better and make a better product. At the end, you're like, okay, and this is what we do, um, or you know, just build up a following that way. And so I've always felt that this way of giving back to the community, being part of the community, giving back to the community, being embedded in the community, um, it's it's a longer process, it's a longer game, but it works. Whereas just saying a post of here's this great new technology we've invented, it looks like a press release. 
other than your own company employees and their friends and maybe your parents clicking on like and 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 follow um no one wants to read that so i think marketing has to be smart and it has to be about understanding the business understanding the uh the market understanding the customers and becoming part of that community and then when you put out the post of hey look at this great you know new um uh, invention we have they're like oh well that's that's exactly what i was reading about in this other article i need to learn more uh so i think that's really really key now again life sciences whole different story you invent a cure to cancer there's like you know it's just a matter of going through a regulatory process and then talking to you know pfizer and and a few other companies like that and you're done different way of operating and it's about the science uh even if it's like med tech there's conferences where everybody goes and you're just kind of part of it but when it comes to anything else even if it's very technical you have to find the customers but i think more importantly you have to make it so the customers find you and that to me is what marketing is about so i think it's key um and if you don't do it then you're just building a product and build it and nobody will come no, also also life science changed with the pandemic. I would totally yeah. agree to what you said uh, three years ago. So before 2020, okay. it was exactly the way that you mentioned. Right. Uh, life science, you can forget about social media. You need to know the right people within Pfizer. You need to prove in a clinical trial that uh, it works, and then you can sell it directly to the to the industry. But it yep. also changed in life science with the pandemic. Now I think everybody in life science is on LinkedIn and is heavily right. using it and promoting it. Uh, what it makes easier, in my opinion, is on one hand, finding the right venture capitalists. Yes. So especially yes. when it comes to values, beliefs, uh, and personal fit between founders and VCs. Yes. Uh, when founders demonstrate over years what they did in the past, their successes, their failures, it builds a lot of trust and yes. also helps the VCs understand are the founders working in the direction I want them to go? So is it really a, a VC mindset the founder has? As you mentioned before, right. Right. Um, right. a VC wants to sell basically to the industry and when a founder wants to change the world and wants to build a huge sales force, it's not so VC case. So it helps to differentiate yes. that. Um and also VCs are using it heavily. Uh, I learned yes. they promote yes. a lot, uh, or they use a lot of the know-how uh, and describe a lot of the know-how on LinkedIn these days, which is a very yep. high-level resource. Um, yep. My question to you, before I continue talking endlessly, I mean, you have built uh, a huge following on Medium. I think it's about 30,000 people, if I remember it right. Um then you have about 13,000 on LinkedIn or 12,000. <laughs> You've been stalking me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm doing a little bit of my research before the podcast. Um, how did that change your business life? Did, did you feel an impact or is it just, yeah, I have it and it's nice to have? Uh, what, what's, uh, how did it change your business, this, this huge following? So... The the following on LinkedIn started because I was building startups and I needed to find customers and I was doing exactly what I described, which is like being connected with everyone in the industry and um, just kind of being part of it. And that built up, you know, um, uh, some, let's say, 5,000 followers that way, which was basically just me, like reaching out to 10,000 people and half of them saying, OK. Um, and 
then I started the the writing on Medium about uh, about startups and specifically, uh, and and the way that came about was I was you know so I've been an investor for ten years, angel investor at that point, um, and I also a uh, am a, a mentor at a lot of different accelerators, and I would hear the same questions. I would hear the same misunderstandings, some of the things that we're talking about today, all the things that in my articles mostly come out of discussions with uh, startups and kind of what advice they need or what are they not understanding. And I'm much more of a writer than a, than a talker. And so it, I kept on hearing the same questions. So let me put my thoughts down, organize it, write it up. And it kind of started with like, what's a good pitch deck? Why are these pitch decks horrible? Why are we spending uh, weeks and weeks and weeks revising the pitch decks and they're still not very good? How do we make a good pitch deck? What's wrong with it? Uh, My headset. So I started writing a uh, a series of articles about, uh, about how to make a good pitch deck, what needs to be in the pitch deck, what needs to be in each slide. Uh, I put up on my own blog. And I thought, well, you know, Google searches will find it. Nobody found it. So the only people who read it were the, uh, were the you know, kind of the startup founders where I, I would be at a uh, accelerator. And I'd say, you know, I, I try and I explain this in a lot more detail, a lot better in this article. Here's the link to it. Just read the article and then we can come back and discuss particular questions. And then I put it on Medium because why not? Uh, another place to get the same articles out. And uh, nobody read it. <laughs> and uh, so then a, um, a publication on Medium said, oh, this is interesting. Can we add it to the publication? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Whatever. And suddenly I went from having like five views a day to having uh, a thousand views a day. Like, wow, OK, this is how it works. You need to be in a publication. Um, and then people started following me. When, and so which, I started. Which, which year was this? This with the publication. Uh, that was probably two years ago. Mm-hmm. I started mm-hmm. doing that, um, and then so I started having a lot of people following me. And I was writing these every every week or every two weeks. So I started in this rhythm, and I'd write it. I'd put it on the on the publication. Publication would send it out. They have like two hundred thousand followers, or another publication has two million followers, and get a lot of readers. They would follow me, and then some of them would would hit me up on LinkedIn. I'd put the same articles on LinkedIn, um, and so then, you know, the, the the people in in my community would would um, forward it to uh, would would share it, or uh, I guess on LinkedIn, if you hit uh, like or add a comment, then it goes out to the people in, in, that are their first connections. So I get I started getting a lot of people following me that way. I'm like, great. Anyone wants, please follow me. Anyone watching the show right now? Please, uh, please connect with me on LinkedIn. Love to have a bigger community. It's really about building that community. Um, and then somehow or other, I became like the top writer in venture capital on uh, on link uh, on on Medium. And Medium started recommending me as one of the people to follow. Uh, mm-hmm. So I started getting you know my followers just started exploding. I'm like, wow. Um, and then and then I go on Twitter. And like I've been working on my Twitter followers for like two years, and I'm still like at a thousand, right? Like, um, and I'm following all these people. Nobody's following me back. It's like, okay, Twitter's a different world. <laughs> so yeah. Um, now, of those followers on uh, Medium, um, 
there's so I think it's currently somewhere around uh, 30,000 followers. I'd say probably half or more are people who just like logged in so that they could see one article. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you set up your account, it makes you follow a few people. So they, I was one of the top ones. I hit like, 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 and they never hear from them again. So they're kind of like bots. Um, they're not real followers. Um, but there probably are, you know, I, I do get up to 10,000 people reading, uh, reading an article. If I have a good title that, uh, has a little bit clickbait and people get excited about it. So, um, it's really been a great way to, uh, to build an audience and get in front of people. Um, and, uh, ironically, I started doing this as a way to kind of build my following and, uh, eventually help promote the book as well. Um, I probably won't make very much money from the book. I mean, that's just the nature of small press. You just don't make very much. Um, I'll probably make more from from the articles on Medium that are used to promote the uh, the book because uh, Medium does pay you a little bit for each uh, for each viewers or each reader. So um, anyway, uh, even if it didn't pay me, and at some point Medium will probably run out of money and stop paying their their uh, their writers because uh, so? they're a startup as well. Well. They'll definitely cut the amount that they they pay. Um, they're they're kind of trying to find a business model. They are a startup themselves. I think a Series C startup mm-hmm. that um, has. I don't think the growth rates are what they need to be to get to an IPO, and no one seems interested in buying them. So they're. I mean, they just got rid of the last CEO, who's the founder, and brought in somebody else, and now they're trying some new things. Um, right now, it's not sustainable. Um, they're completely subscription, no advertising. I think the next thing to do is probably add advertising. Um, because right now, they, uh, so if you sign up uh, after reading one of my articles, I get paid half of your subscription fees. So you're, it's $5 a month. I get $250 a month. Uh, that's nice. Um, and then they also pay somewhere around half of their, uh, their subscription fees uh, to writers for the articles based on how much they're read. So that's 100% of their income right there. Uh, so I don't know how they make money. Uh, and I'm pretty sure they're losing money. Um, so at some point, they're going to have to figure out a business model that either gets them much higher growth or gets them uh, more uh, faster growing revenue so that they can either be acquired or do an IPL. Yeah, some 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 writers make serious or, or make serious money on on medium I read. Um yes. so hundred thousand dollars one wrote he made hundred thousand and his his best yes. paying jobs was seventy five thousand young yes. person. It's great. Yeah. What I liked what I liked about Medium I mean I started writing on Medium in end, end of twenty nineteen and uh, mm-hmm. the reason was I was looking for a simple platform where I could uh, post one or two articles to yep. promote the conference I organized in twenty nineteen yep. here in Vienna. Right. And the interesting thing was or is still that Medium is doing a fantastic job in getting the articles into Google search. So uh, almost every article that I wrote has right. uh, it, my world, a great ranking in Google search, much better than posting my article on my own website. Yes, and yes, I think this makes yes. the platform very unique. I hope they keep keep going yes. and uh, continue that because the, I mean, I don't have a lot of followers. I think it's 1,300 or something. But uh, I do get a lot of reach out. So a lot of people try to read my article. They find it on Google search, then uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, Podcast, for example, some people found me on Medium, then found out that I also promote my podcast on Medium. Right. 
Had any quarter yeah, I, So a lot of the people on Medium are doing it because they want to make money. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of trash on Medium and <laughs> there's a lot of clickbait and there's a lot of not very good articles. And sometimes I think Medium, I, I tell people Medium can be Twitter without a word limit. Um, <laughs> just rants and blogs and not very well written stuff. Um, but it is whatever you want it to be. And uh, there's also a lot of really great content on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not using it to try to make money because your job is to market something else, whether that be your conferences or whether that be a product, um, it, it can be, I mean, if you just have your own company blog, it's not going to get high rankings and is very clearly promoting your own product. So sometimes that's good. You want to have both of them, but Medium is is a place to post kind of industry articles. No, I like I like Medium. Um, let's come to the to the final questions. We are almost at two hours, so it's uh, wow. seven. <laughs> seven. Uh, it's one hour forty forty two. Um, we tackled a lot in this podcast. Um, so talking about your experience as business angel, giving advice to potential angel investors. We talked about venture capital, about the startup world, about your book, about business to business marketing. Um, usually I end my podcast with give advice to this or that group. Uh, in our case, I would like to give it a little bit of a different turn. You finished your book. It's out on the market mm-hmm. and I can recommend yep. it. Uh, you also mentions that uh you divest it in some startups what's next in your life is it the next book <laughs> is it uh investing in more startups what are your plans for the future what am i going to be when i grow up yeah i'm still trying to figure <laughs> that out uh, right now it's probably a little bit of all of the above so the second book is finished and hopefully will come out sometime around the end of this year oh it's really sequel yeah so it's a yeah. sequel same characters, uh, Ted and uh, Sumire again, uh, with another mystery, more of a cyber thriller, no manga in this one, um, about, uh, and again, hacking about privacy and, and terrorism. Um, so that one's finished. I'm working on my third one, which is completely different story about uh, sake tasting in Japan, mm-hmm. um, where there's more of an Agatha Christie style uh, uh, mystery. Um But at the same time, I, you know, I really enjoy angel investing and working with startups. So I will absolutely be continuing to to do that. Um, But then at some point, I'm still waiting to find the right startup uh, to jump in and join as a co-founder. So Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I've joined a few as um, as a like fractional co-founder, a fractional chief marketing officer. Uh, I really like to find one in the area of my passion, which is climate tech, um, and jump in and and be the co-founder as a as a full-time job and kind of move everything else to being uh, part-time. Uh, but I haven't found that yet. So in the meantime, it's a little bit this, a little bit that. People look at my LinkedIn profile and it's like, well, what is this guy? Is he a novelist? Is he a startup <laughs> founder? Is he a marketing person? Is he a... Uh, uh, is he an editor of a Japanese magazine? Is it a Japanese mm-hmm. teacher? Like, uh, we can't figure out what this person is. I'm like, yeah, I can't either. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So you don't, you want to get your hands dirty again, back to yes. the startup world. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Why, uh, why, I do, why, why I do that? miss that. Why that? 
I mean, I, uh, I, have, to, I have the same personality. Yes. So I also, yes. uh, I also, I mean, I love investing in the public market. I love doing podcasts. Yeah. It's uh, I learn a lot talking like uh, talking to interesting people, like uh, people like you. But I, I still like creating companies, building companies. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, what's your reason to go back into the in the? It, it's the, the same game? thing. I mean, investing in other companies is great. You get to do kind of live vicariously without having to do any any real work um <laughs> but to me as a founder who spent you know a couple decades building uh my own startups uh that's what i really enjoy it's it's the creative process it's the figuring it, it's the daily i mean every day is frustrating every day drives you crazy but at the same time um when you find a new customer when you figure out you know how you're going to pivot when you build the product, when you write the greatest web page that's ever been written. Um, there is a real satisfaction in that that um, is is hard to find anywhere else. And I think once you're a startup founder, you're always a startup founder. So you always hear startup founders yeah. like, "Well, this is my next startup. This is my next startup. And this is my next startup." It's like, why don't you just stay at some company? It's like, no, uh, it's the startup phase where you're where. You know, there's less than 25 people. You are figuring things out. There's no bureaucracy. Um, that's the exciting part for me. And I think there's, you know, like yourself, I, I would imagine, um, you know, put me in a company with 200 people where I get 10 employees that can do everything for me. I just get to say what they should do. I'd rather just or, invest than do that, yeah. right? You know, I don't, I, 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 I like having, I like having a team. I like having people working with me and being the team leader. I don't like just being a boss and kind of setting priorities. Uh, so the startup phase where you're really figuring things out to me is the uh, the creative part. It's the exciting part. And you get to wear a lot of hats, right? The bigger the company is, uh, you know, the more you get kind of pigeonholed into this is your role right here. You do this. Um, and I like the writing. I like the, you know, I don't like sales, but I like talking to customers. So uh, I do that too. And uh, you know, I get involved. I'll, I'll do the QA, right? Because somebody needs to make sure the product works and we don't have a QA person. So that's me. No one else is doing it. I'll answer the phones. I'll make the coffee, whatever it takes to build the startup. Uh, that's kind of part of the process. And I like just kind of being involved in everything. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I love it too. Usually, come on. No, board you and I, we, we should yeah. figure out a startup together and, and, and build something. We'd be great together. You have some ideas here. <laughs> Maybe we'll do this yes. one. Um, last yes, question. Just don't, we, 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 we promise not to kill anybody. We'll, we'll start there. First, <laughs> first, <laughs> first rule of our mission statement, we will not kill anybody. <laughs> After reading this book, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we could continue, in my opinion, for another two hours, but yes. uh, I think uh, you have other things to do. It's your morning. It's my evening. Um, yes, it's, it's time for you to have a beer and enjoy your uh, enjoy your weekend. That's true. Um, final question. Did we miss anything in this podcast? Did, is there anything open that you would like to ask me? Is there any topic that you would like to have tackled? Is there any message you would like to spread to the world? Uh We'll start with the message to startups, um, which is, and it ties into what I was saying before. Uh, if you want to build a startup, be prepared to be resilient. Every day is a challenge. Um, we have an expression in English you probably know, three steps forward, two steps back. Um, startups is three steps forward, 2.9 steps back. <laughs> um, 
it's you every day is a roller coaster. You feel like you're making progress and then mm-hmm. like everything evaporates and um, it drives you crazy. But it's an adventure. So, um, you know, if you don't like adventures, don't do a startup. And if you do like adventures, startups are great and it's going to drive you crazy. But um, just relax at some point and enjoy the ride because it will be a crazy ride. Uh, so that's kind of my message of be prepared. Uh, don't get over uh, excited when good things happen because the bad thing's going to happen. And don't get depressed when the bad things happen because something good is is coming soon that that'll that's even better. So sit back and enjoy the uh, the the uh, the ride. Uh, and then lastly, um, I, I have to put the last plug in for my book. People ask me where they can buy it. The easiest way is go on Amazon. Uh, Amazon rules the world. Uh, in fact, I think pretty much anywhere in the world, you can find my book on Amazon to kill a unicorn and it's available as ebook or, uh, or paperback. And being in Europe is not an excuse. It also ships to yep. Europe, obviously. Yep. <laughs> it's in English only right now. Sorry, but, uh, it's good. It's one good day tra- we'll get that. It's good training for European startups when they want to pitch yes. then in the United yes. States. Yeah. Thank you very much for this uh, oh, amazing conversation. So been, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed this too. It's been a lot of fun. And I can't wait until I get your second book. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to get you an autographed copy for the second one. Somehow. This, would be, this would be great. I would love it. I yes. would love it. Yep. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, have a great day. Thanks, Christian. Have a great Friday and enjoy yes. your weekend. <laughs> Will do. You too. All right. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us in this great episode with DC Parter. We discussed startups, resilience and cultural understanding. Please subscribe to the channel and like this episode. Leave a comment and share it with others who might find it helpful. I appreciate your support and hope to see you in the next episode. Don't forget to spread the word about our podcast. Thanks again and see you next time.